Well, hey, everyone. Good morning. How are we? Uh, it's good to see all of you. I just want to remind all of you, the front couple of rows, it's still pretty cool up here, okay? It's not hot. It's not like they're not spitting on you or anything, okay? Like, it's just so we know, okay? Not next week. Don't show up next week. But the following week, just think about it. Be like, hey, maybe, maybe I'll sit in the front couple of rows this week, even if you're late. It's okay. Like, almost everyone's late. It's fine, all right? Just, just come to the front. It's okay, all right. Um, we're in the middle of a series in the uh, Gospel of Mark that we're calling The Life and Way of Jesus. Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and get those out. We are in Mark chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 23 in just a moment. And I know I'm saying this just about every single week, but I just want to remind us we are in the gospel of Mark because we want to immerse ourselves in, in the life of Jesus and what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We want to kind of go back to the source documents, so to speak. We want to go back to the source of, of what Jesus is all about. You know, we can make following Jesus, we can make this thing that we call Christianity so many different things, can't we? We can make it about so many different things, and we want to go back to the source, so to speak, and really get at what is this following Jesus thing all about. Our mission, our mission at our church is to help people find and follow Jesus, and, and we can't do that unless we are passionate about it and, and we're doing it well, Right? So, so we want to be about that. And so as we jump into Mark 2 today, we're going to read about the final two conflict stories between Jesus and the religious leaders. We've been looking at these for the last four weeks. At the beginning of Mark, there's five conflict stories. And in these uh, stories that we're going to see today, it's a prime example of what it looks like for a group of people to drift away from the original purpose of a, of a particular spiritual practice. In this case, a practice known as the Sabbath. And hopefully by the end of our time today, as we've looked at this passage, we'll have a better understanding and a better awareness of the ways that we all can drift in our own spiritual practices and how we might be able to return again to the true and right purposes of following Jesus and what's that, what, that, what that's all about. Does that sound good? Yeah, pretty good? Okay, good. So if you would... Would you please stand with me as I read our passage today, starting in Mark 2, verse 23. So Jesus was going through the grain fields on a Sabbath, and his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way. And so the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he, is, he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God when Abiathar, the high priest, ate the, and, and ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to his companions. Then he said to him, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And for this reason, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In chapter 3, verse 1. Then Jesus entered the synagogue again. And a man was there who had a withered hand, and they watched Jesus closely, that's the Pharisees, to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. So he said to the man who had the withered hand, stand up among all these people. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil, to save a life or destroy it? But they were silent. After looking around at them in anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. 
So the Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians as to how they could assassinate him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we invite your spirit into this place. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Would you help us to uh, see what you would have for us this morning? Lord, would you help us to strip away the the dross and the junk, uh, the things that we have attached to our discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus? And would you help us to follow you freely and lightly? Help us to return to the good and intended purpose of following you today. Spirit, I pray that you would anoint me. Would you speak through me today? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. So a little while ago, there was an article in uh, the newspaper about how godparents had been banned by the Catholic diocese in Sicily. Interesting, huh? And according to this article, the ancient tradition of naming godparents at the christening of your child um, had been banned for three years because, quote, Church officials argue that the once essential figure in a child's Christian education has lost all spiritual significance. Instead, they say it has become a networking opportunity for families looking to improve their fortunes, secure endowments of gold necklaces, and make advantageous connections, sometimes with local power brokers who have dozens of godchildren. Wow. So now now you might be godparents, or you might have godparents. My story's a little interesting. I was born into a home with like a split Christian tradition at the time. And my mom was born and raised in New Mexico as a Southern Baptist, and my dad was born and raised in Chicago as a Catholic. And I, I, I don't know how it all worked out and how, what happened there, but, but all I know is that the Baptist side won. <laughs> uh, that's just, it's just my story. In retrospect, it's kind of a bummer because at this point in my life, I would just love to have this endowment of golden necklaces <laughs> to fall back on. But that aside, I found this article uh, really fascinating as a case study in the ways that things leave their intended purpose, in the ways things drift and morph and form and deform into something else entirely. And we're all aware of this in our own lives, in our own practices, in our own ways, aren't we? It's like when you buy a, a really expensive piece of workout equipment, like a Peloton bike, and you have all the good intentions in the world to work out and get fit and look good, and it just becomes this expensive clothes hanger, right? <laughs> or it's, it's, it's when you set a goal to save lots of money because you want to be more generous, but then you see that pile of money start to grow, and you start to think instead about being generous, you start thinking about building your net worth or the next big fun thing you can buy for you or your family. Or you decide to stay at home on Sundays to worship online because there was a pandemic, and then that just sort of became the easy thing to do. And now years later, most of your life is back to normal. You're doing most everything else in your world the the same way you did years ago except church. That one kind of stung a little bit, didn't it? (laughs) And I could go on. We drift in all of these ways, many, many more. We all do it. It just seems like it's the natural way of our life. 
And our text today addresses this kind of drift, a, a spirituality drift, we'll call it. When things tend to move away from their intended purpose, it's about how things like ritual and, and practices and spirituality, they, they can have beautiful meaning and good purpose, but over time they, they turn into something else entirely. It's, it's like they go from godparents intended to raise a child in the way of Jesus to, to brokering your child's future to inherit gold chains. In our text today, there are two scenes that center around this practice known as the Sabbath. And, and then the first scene opens up and Jesus, he's walking along in this grain field with his disciples on the Sabbath, which for them, just to note, was on a Saturday. And as they got hungry while they were walking, Jesus would, would pull the heads of these grains and he would rub them in his hands and he would eat some of them. And so his disciples started to do the same thing as Jesus because they follow him and they do what Jesus does. They began to do the same thing. And so they're all walking in this grain field. They're plucking the heads of grain and they're rubbing it in their hands and they're eating it. And they're like, oh, it's pretty good. This is a good idea. I like it. This is tasty right now. And they're walking along on the Sabbath and doing it. And the Pharisees, they see them and they say to one another in verse 24, look, why are they doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? Now you might ask, what, why is it? Why is, why is it illegal on the Sabbath to, to eat? Like, do you, have to, do you have to fast on the Sabbath? You're not allowed to fast on the Sabbath either, and that's, that's not the case. That's, what, that's not what's going on here. Um, according to Pharisees and the rabbinical tradition at the time, to even pull grain with your hands was considered work. And on the Sabbath, you were to refrain from work. And so what Jesus was doing, according to the Pharisees in rabbinical tradition, was he was harvesting the grain and then threshing it with his hands, and this was considered work. But what we need to understand is the Pharisees were just trying to bust Jesus on a technicality. And so Jesus answers their question with another question. And if you ever find yourself in a tight spot, take this cue from Jesus, okay? <laughs> His question centers around this really interesting story from the life of David that we find in 1 Samuel. And in this story in 1 Samuel, David is on the run from Saul and, 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 and they're, they're finding themselves famished and hungry and so they go to the tabernacle and there's this really special bread at the tabernacle. It's not like Wonder Bread or like a Panera Bread Bowl. Like this is like really special bread and there are 12 loaves of this show bread in the tabernacle representing the 12 tribes of Israel and they take it and eat it even though it was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. And the reason the reason Jesus brings this story up to the Pharisees here is that it was another instance where human need trumped this meticulous and misunderstood way of interpreting God's law. And this is the crux of the issue here. Jesus and the Pharisees, they view God's law very, very differently. They view his commands in vastly different ways. For the Pharisees, according to Bible scholar Tim, uh, Tim Gombus, the law had become the means to establishing a national identity of purity and rectitude in an effort to move God to bring the day of salvation nearer. 
And I mentioned this briefly last week. You see, the Pharisees, they actually had this um, wrong belief, this misinterpretation of this passage in Jeremiah 17. And they believed that if everyone in Israel, every man, woman, and child rightly kept the Sabbath just two times, then this would usher in the kingdom of God. This would usher in the Messiah. And so this is why they were so fastidious. This is why they were so meticulous about keeping the law because they thought, man, if we just get everyone to do this two times, we will usher in the kingdom. We will usher in the Messiah. And it's really ironic because Jesus is like, are you serious? I'm right here, y'all. Like the kingdom is here. I am the Messiah. But a truly unfortunate result of this mentality is that God's law became this heavy and burdensome obligation for people. Essentially, listen to this. For the Pharisees, principles had become more important than people. Principles had become more important than people. They drifted. They drifted. They drifted from the original purpose and intent of the law, what God's heart for the law was. And this is what Jesus is trying to recall his people to in this moment. You see, for Jesus, the law was something entirely different than what the Pharisees understood the law to be. And Jesus says as much in verse 27 when he says that the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. For Jesus, the purpose of the law, and this includes the Sabbath right here in this passage, was to enable the flourishing of God's people. That was the purpose of the law. Its purpose was to give us wisdom on how to walk in the love of God and the love of our neighbor. And listen, this might come as a surprise to you, but the law of God, like the Mosaic law that we find in the Old Testament, is thoroughly saturated with the grace of God. It was not meant to be this heavy, burdensome thing that was to be laid upon us so that we would fulfill it and achieve some end like the Pharisees believed it would. It was meant to lead to flourishing. There's so many provisions in God's law for the marginalized, for the hurting. It was meant to usher in justice. And yet it was misinterpreted because the Pharisees drifted off of God's original intention, original purpose. And again, Jesus is trying to call God's people back to this. He's trying to draw us back away from our drift to the heart of God, to the heart of his commands, which were good things that were meant to liberate his people, not burden them. And so, you know, we we see all of this again in the second scene. Chapter 3, verse 1. Where where do we find Jesus there? Chapter 3, verse 1. The synagogue. He's in the synagogue, and it says he's in the synagogue again. And and so what we see is Jesus, Jesus is like obeying the law because he loves the law. He's not trying to come against the law with his life, with his work, with his words. He's observing it. He's going to synagogue. Now, 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 while he's at the synagogue, something interesting happens. He encounters this man with a withered hand. Now, this, withered, withered, or this man with a withered hand would have been ostracized. He would have been an outcast. And for some in that culture, they would have believed that he would have had a withered hand because he did something wrong. 
or, or someone like his parents or his grandparents did something wrong. And so, so God was punishing him in that moment. And, and, and in verse 2, like we, we see that the Pharisees are still there. And they're watching Jesus, and they're trying to get him, and they're waiting to see if he's going to violate, quote-unquote, the Sabbath according to their interpretation. And, and listen, Jesus knew this. He for sure knew this because as we've already seen, Jesus has this gift of knowledge. He knows their hearts. He knows our hearts. And so he, he confronts their stubborn hard-heartedness again with another question. And, he's, and he asks in verse 3, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? To, to save a life or, or destroy it? And then this question right here, it reveals to us a little bit more as to how Jesus observes the law, the, the good and original intended purpose of what God had set in place here. According to Jesus, he says here that the failure to do good is evil which I think all of us would agree with, right? Like, like if it's in our power to do something good and we choose not to do it, that's, that's evil. And that's what Jesus says. The failure to do good is evil. And according to Jesus, this principle was even true on the Sabbath. Even on a day where we're supposed to refrain from work and trust God as provider, Jesus here, he's like, it's better to save a life on the Sabbath than to destroy it. And then in like, in, in, in kind of this sneaky, cheeky way that only Jesus can do, he, he, he doesn't go over to the man and, like, touch him. He, he doesn't, like, get water and splash it on his hand or, or make mud and put it on his hand. He, he just tells the man, right? Like, Jesus really doesn't do anything. He just tells the man to, to open up his hand. And the man does, and, and lo and behold, he is, he is healed, it's a miracle. I mean, can you imagine if someone today, you had like a bad back or a bad leg and you stood up and someone was like, just stretch it out and they were healed. Like, can you imagine the response in our room today? We'd be, we'd be like losing our minds. It'd be amazing. We'd be like, that's a miracle. That's so awesome. We'd be praising God. And remember, like at the very beginning, one of the first conflict scenes with Jesus and the Pharisees where they lowered that man into the room and Jesus said, stand up, son, your sins are, are forgiven and, and you're healed and he stands up. Do you remember the response of all the people in that room? Do you remember what they did? They praised God. They were like, we've never seen anything like this before in our lives. This is incredible. But, but juxtapose that at the beginning now the beginning of this little section in Mark with all these little vignettes, juxtapose that now with the response of the Pharisees. Look at verse six. What's their response to this healing? So the Pharisees went out immediately and began plotting with the Herodians so as, how, so as to how they could assassinate him. Like if you want to talk about things that are prohibited on the Sabbath... Like, like, forget harvesting grain, forget healing, plotting murder. Like, that's against the Sabbath, right? It's kind, it's kind of a, like, like, listen, if you're thinking about it, stop, okay? Like, that's not God's heart for your life and for whoever you're plotting to kill. Another negative consequence of spirituality drift right here. 
Listen, it's not just that our spiritual practices drift from their original intentions. It, to, to, to drift off course, listen, another negative consequence is we arrive in a completely different place and become completely different people. Instead of becoming people who embody the love of God, instead of becoming the kind of people who display the fruits of the Spirit, instead of becoming people who look more like Jesus, we become, when we drift off course from the good and original intentions of following after Jesus and and practicing what Jesus did, we become these hate-filled, stubborn, hard-hearted individuals. This is what happened to the Pharisees. They drifted in a major way from from God's heart and from the intentions of his law and they became this hateful, stubborn, hard-hearted group of people that were plotting murder against their promised Messiah that they were waiting for and, and, and they had partnered with this group called the Herodians and if you know anything about the Herodians, they were like the powerful people of Rome who were invading the nation of Israel in essence. Like they were their overlords The Pharisees were formed in part against the Herodians. You know it gets bad when you're partnering with your enemies to kill another enemy. Listen, I think one of the greatest dangers to our discipleship to Jesus today is to be unaware of the ways that we're allowing our lives, our discipleship, our spirituality to drift away from their intended purpose into all of these other ways that have no real meaning or purpose. We, we, we start by doing something good. We start by coming to church and by reading our Bible and by spending time in prayer and by joining a group to grow in our discipleship with Jesus. We start by doing all of these things, but then over time, over time these things just have this tendency to drift into something else entirely, and we never stop in those moments to ask ourselves, am I missing the purpose of what I'm doing here? Have I drifted? Have I lost the thread? What's the intended meaning and the purpose of all of these things? And so what I want to do now is I just want to draw our attention to. I want to highlight a few different ways that we allow our spirituality to drift from its original intended purpose. One of the ways that we get off course is our spirituality drifts into self-service. Our spirituality drifts into self-service. The Pharisees, they had this wrong belief. If they just kept Sabbath twice perfectly, it would bring in the Messiah. And so they're like, if we do this, then God has to do this. And we do this all the time. We might think that's silly or foolish that the Pharisees thought that, but we do this all the time. We fast to get a spouse. We, we, we read our Bibles, we, we pray every day, and we hope and pray that God blesses our lives, that it will compel him to bless our lives in such a way, like, God, bless my business, bless my family, help me to avoid, like, any major hardships in my life, and, and we believe that if we do these certain things, God will then be compelled to look favorably upon us. We, we drift into self-serving, and you might be like, I don't do that. Uh, that's not really a thing people do anymore. Like, we know better. We're smarter than that. But listen, here's how I know that we do this. Here's how I know we do this. I know that we do this because oftentimes when, like, calamity and trial and hardship hit our lives, do you know what one of the first things that we as followers of Jesus do? 
we run back to all of the spiritual practices that we neglected. And we do that, listen, in part because I, we're, we're complicated beings. And we do that in part because we know like, that's where we're going to find peace and, and, and hope. But I, I believe that we do this in part because we think that, like, man, I've really messed up and God noticed. And, and, and if I get my spiritual walk with Jesus back on track, then, then, then God will, will be compelled to get the rest of my life back on track. Our spirituality drifts into this self-service, self-serving spirituality. Another way we drift in our discipleship to Jesus is our spirituality drifts into self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, we're like, I'm better than you because I do this thing. And yeah, you might, you might pray and read your Bible, but do you fast? Do you practice the Sabbath? I spent two days by myself. Like, I do all the practices of Jesus, you know? Again, you might be like, I, I don't know anyone like that, but if you don't, just imagine the way like a militant vegan acts. <laughs> now listen, like if you're a vegan, cool, more power to you. I know plenty of gracious vegans, but I know some militant ones, okay? <laughs> we all know people who embrace a certain kind of lifestyle. They make everyone feel worse about themselves for not doing what they do. And this sort of self-righteous spirituality Listen, it's so dangerous because its final destination is anger and hatred and contempt. That's where it lands. That's what happened with the Pharisees. It's, it's hatred and disgust with anyone who doesn't think like you think and act like you act. That's where this self-righteous spirituality lands. This is, again, this is where the Pharisees landed. They hated Jesus so much because he kept violating their interpretation of the Sabbath. They hated him so much they plotted to kill him on the Sabbath because this is what self-righteous spirituality does. It makes you sideways and crazy. You end up breaking your own laws of righteousness to preserve the image of your righteousness. That's what we do. One last observation about the way our spirituality can drift, and I think this is an increasingly major problem in our culture. Our spirituality drifts into self-realization. Self-realization, and here's what I mean by this. Our, our discipleship and following Jesus no longer has the aim of loving God and loving others, but it drifts into this place where the purpose of our spiritual practices and our following Jesus is there to enable us to become our healthiest and best self. And, and so fasting no longer is fasting with the spiritual intent of following Jesus. It becomes dieting or like intermittent fasting. And, 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 and prayer no longer becomes prayer to experience the love of God. It becomes a way to quiet our hearts so that we can know what's going on inside of myself. Sabbath no longer becomes a, a time to refrain from work and trust God to provide, but it becomes like a digital detox, you know, something that's popular today and, and well, like much needed, but, but these, these things, they, be, they become, they're in service of our own good, our own becoming who we need to become, our healthiest and best self. And this drift into spirituality is self-realization. Um, just one thing I've noticed, it's become a growing trend over the last 80 years or so. An article last week was published in the Atlantic magazine called How America Got Mean, written by David Brooks. And he observes that in the wake of World War II, 
as people wrestled with the horrors of the early 20th century, the emphasis in our society moved away from moral formation toward this hyper-individualized focus of self-actualization. And and this shift has had massive impact on our culture and society. In the article, he writes this. In 1967, about 85% of college students said they were strongly motivated to, to develop a meaningful philosophy of life. But by 2000, only 40% said that. Being financially well-off became the leading goal. By 2012, 82% of students said that wealth was their aim. And so the point is this. For some of us, our discipleship to Jesus, our spirituality can drift and become just another form of self-realization. It becomes all about me. I need a Sabbath because I need a break. And listen, some of you need a break. You need time off, I get that. We fast because we wanna look good, we pray and spend time in silence because we, we wanna be in touch with our inner self. We do all of these things though for us, for ourself. And so with all that said and the ways that we drift, how, how then do we return? How do we return to the good and intended purpose of following Jesus? First, I want to ask this. Do you feel like following Jesus in your life has grown mundane? Has it, has it felt pointless? Has it lost its purpose? Has prayer lost its meaning? Do you find yourself trying to pray and getting up in the morning and you're like, what am I doing right now? Like, is God even listening? Is this even a thing? Have you, have you asked yourself this question regarding church? Like, why why do I get up on Sunday mornings and gather with all these random people, you know? For some of you, maybe you just like, you only come here because there are people. Other of you are like, man, like people are the worst part of this thing, you know? Like, (laughs) does your generosity feel like you're giving your hard-earned money away just to whatever when you could spend it on something good for yourself? Does it all, like, bottom line, does it all just feel pointless and mundane? Sometimes our following Jesus, our, our spirituality, can, can grow to feel mundane and pointless. And when that happens, listen, we need to be reminded of the beginning, of the intention, of the hope. And, and one thing that Jesus would do while he was teaching people is, is he would just be sitting there and, and people would be gathered around and he'd be teaching and he'd take like a cute little kid and, and, he'd, and he'd put this kid on, on, on his lap, and he would say, this is what it's about. Like the other week, I was helping out with our VBS. I was like, I was the third grade group leader. And, and let me tell you, like just the joy that you see on these kids' faces as they gather for VBS. Like yes, they're chaotic, and yes, it is just a total madhouse, but, but the joy they have singing these simple songs that drive adults crazy, but they love it. And, and the simple crafts, the happiness that they have making these simple crafts and the fun they have playing these games, there is just this joy and this trust and, and, and this freedom that's there. And so what Jesus would do is he would take a child and he'd put the child on his lap, and, and, and he would say, listen, this is what it's about. I don't want you to forget. It's about childlike joy, childlike trust, childlike faith. Don't forget this. Return to that joy. Church, return to that trust. 
return to that joy. In Revelation 2, Jesus is speaking to the churches, and one of the churches that he speaks to there in Revelation 2 is this church in Ephesus. And Jesus says to this church in Ephesus, man, you guys are crushing it. You're doing everything right. You're serving the poor. You're gathering together. You're worshiping my name. But I've got one thing against you. You've abandoned your first love. You forgot your first love. Which means like the church is actually doing really good, but, but they drifted. They drifted away from the purpose, from the meaning of it all. Which is what? What's the meaning of it all? What's the purpose of all this? What's the reason we pray? What's the reason we gather together as a church? What's the reason we Sabbath or fast or any of those things? The reason is so that we would love God and love others. That's the purpose of all of it. That's why we're here. It's why we do what we do. And listen, you and I must return to the goal of love. That we would be the kind of people that experience the love of God truly and deeply, that we would know how deeply loved by God we are, and that we would be people who go out into the world and share that love with others. Why do we pray? And prayer feels so complicated, and it's like, I know I'm supposed to be like praying for these people and petitioning for all these people. Listen, the primary reason why we pray is to sit and experience and, and, and understand the depths of God's love for us. That's why we sit and pray, so that we would know that love and be able to go out and love others well. Why, why, do, we, why do we fast, say? Why do we, we, we fast, not because it's some spiritual discipline that, that, that sort of compels God to act in a certain way. We fast, first and foremost, so that we would not be the kind of people enslaved to the passions of our flesh, and we would, from that place, be the kind of people who give ourselves to others in a self-giving love. It's why we do these things. Essentially, in your discipleship, you must ask yourself the question, am I becoming a more loving person through this thing? Am I becoming more loving as I read God's word? Am I becoming more loving as I attend church and as I serve? And if not, you have drifted. It's not the, it's not the thing's fault, it's not God's fault. We have drifted from the original intention and purpose. And in Revelation 2, Jesus is like, you've left it. You're doing the right things, but you've drifted from the, from the good intended purpose. And then in this verse, Jesus gives us like this really straightforward, simple, three-point alliterated Baptist sermon, so to speak. And it's, it's this. You want to hear it real quick? He just says this. Remember, repent, redo. Remember, repent, redo. This is what Jesus calls us to. This is what he calls the church in Ephesus to. This is what he calls us to. Remember the purpose. Remember the meaning. Remember where you've fallen from. Remember in your life. Remember that place where these things had so much meaning and purpose and value. Remember that. And then Jesus says, repent. And all, all repent means is to change your mind and the direction of your life. Turn back to that place. Go back to that place. Go back to the meaning. Go back to the, to the purpose. 
Then he says, redo. He says, do it over again. All those things you did at the beginning, the reason why you did those things at the beginning, do it again. Remember, repent, redo. It sounds super simple, but it's not easy. But this is what Jesus calls us to in this moment. As we've drifted away from what he's called us to, Jesus says, remember the purpose. Repent of the way you've been doing it and, and do it again. And so right now, what I wanna do is I wanna invite the band to come back up. And I wanna ask if we would just take this moment right here in silence to reflect. And you can close your eyes if that's helpful for you in this moment. In fact, I'd invite all of us just to do that. Would we just close our eyes in this moment? And would we invite God's spirit right now to show us the ways that we've drifted? That we've drifted from the original good intended purpose of following Jesus. And listen, maybe your discipleship to Jesus has, has grown to feel pointless and mundane. Maybe you didn't even realize it until now. You've just been going through the motions and, and, and doing all the right things, but you've been doing them for the wrong reasons. Would you, just, would you invite God's spirit to show you those ways in your life right now? And then would you ask God as he brings those things to mind, would you ask him to give you the strength, would you repent? Would he give you the strength to, to, to start over, to redo, to turn away from the things in which you were doing uh, those things, the ways in which you were doing those things and start again? You know, you, all of us in this room, we have the propensity to, to wander away from, from what Jesus has called us toward and to drift off into other purposes and reasons. But listen, God's faithful to bring us back and steer us in the right direction and set us on the right course toward his good and intended purpose to grow and, and be people who experience, who deeply know the love of God and we share that love with others. So we just quiet our hearts, invite God's spirit. Let's do that now.